Okay, let's say our blessing for Torah study. Baruch Ata Adonai Elohim Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Amen Amen Open up to Parshat um, Bahar which is on page 850. So this week we're reading a double portion called Bahar and Bechukotai, which are the last three chapters of the book of Vayikra, of Leviticus. And uh, Bahar is in many ways the climax of Leviticus. Hello, welcome. Hi, you made it. Here, I'll, pa- I'll pause a minute. Here, grab a chumash. Page 850. Thank you. And uh, 850. Oh, I heard the door again. Um, Okay, so let's read the first sentence. It says, And yod heh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, Bahar Sinai. That's how it gets this title, this parsha. Bahar means on the mountain. Daberol b'nei Yisraelin v'martalehem. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of God, a sabbatical. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the eternal. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But... You may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle, and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield. Okay, so we'll pause there. So I want to start, this is a description of the sabbatical year. And I want to start with the classic rabbinic question uh, about the way they phrase their inquiry. The, 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 the rabbis ask, whoops, Sorry. that's okay. Bob, that's your, that's your mighty staff. Could Don't. you turn it into a snake? No, I threw on you. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt. That's quite all right. The rabbis ask, What does Shemitah, the sabbatical year, have to do with Mount Sinai? Okay, so I checked. These instructions are specifically being given, it says, on Mount Sinai, right? The last, this is the first time Mount Sinai is mentioned since Moses came down 
in chapter 34 of Exodus. And it's the only time here at the end of Leviticus that it says these are given on Mount Sinai. The book of Deuteronomy doesn't mention Mount Sinai once. Uh, Numbers mentions it once in relation, I looked it up, not in relation to a commandment. So we have this interesting anomaly. Mount Sinai, how many times does it say, and God spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelite people and tell them, right? It says it maybe scores of times. And yet it never says, except here, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, so the way, you, as you know, the way Torah interpretation works is when you have something, an anomaly like this, it demands a question. Um, I think that's cool. You will see that Mount Sinai is mentioned here, and then it's mentioned at the end of chapter 26, which is on page 869. You'll see it on verse 46, the end of chapter 26. It says, yeah, it's in the next portion. These are the laws, rules, and instructions that the yod established through Moses Behar Sinai on Mount Sinai with the children of Israel. So that makes chapter 25 and 26 a literary unit. Right? Chapter 25 is Parshat Bahar, and chapter 26 is Parshat Bechukotai. Nonetheless, that division is, doesn't change the fact that the, the beginning and the end make chapter 25 and 26 a literary unit in the Torah. And then one more mention, the end of chapter 27, which is the last line on page 872, which is the last verse of the entire book of Leviticus, it says, yeah, on 872 it says, and these are the commandments that yod commanded to Moses and to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Uh, so the last words of Leviticus are Mount Sinai, which is pretty cool. Yes? Uh, is Mount Sinai mentioned ever before this? Only when Moses is actually going up Mount Sinai. And what is the uh, perush? What's the meaning of Sinai? Oh. Well, the, the classic understanding of Sinai, Sinai, is that it's the same letters as Sneh, the bush that is burning. Because Hasneh, the bush, is only mentioned, that word, sneh, is only mentioned in the burning bush episode. There are many other words for bush or growth, siach hasadeh, and other kinds of words. But for some interesting and, I think, you know, compelling reason, sneh is used when Moses sees the burning bush, and hasneh and sinai seem to have something to do with each other. Is it, we don't know what it means, but, the, but Moses, the same voice that speaks to Moses from the, the Sneh, speaks to all of Israel from Sinai. That's all I can tell you about it. I think Sneh is also cold. Also what? Cold. 
C-O-A-L? Yeah. C-O-A-L. Um, C-O-A-L. What you burn, but not in Tanakh. No, that may be a modern Hebrew word, but it's not in Tanakh. So in terms of the Tanakh itself, Torah itself, we don't know what it means, other than it seems to be intentionally um, uh, connected in terms of its uh, sound to snap. And it's, it's um, reasons are intuitive, the meaning of snap. Right. From context. That's context, that's right. That's right, because it's not clear exactly what a snet is. So Moses saw, mm. <laughs> right, and so this mountain is where God. This pl- this is the the spot you're standing is holy ground, and somehow the word snet. But we don't. I don't know enough more to tell you than that. In Deuteronomy, I believe the mountain is called Chorev. So there are different traditions about the name of this holy mountain, but in terms of the Torah, Mount Har Sinai. Uh, the last time we hear about it is when Moses comes down from Har Sinai with the second set of tablets at the end of Kitisa, the end of chapter 34 of Exodus, holding the tablets, he comes down from Mount Sinai, from Har Sinai, and his face is radiating light. Right? That's the last time we've heard the words Mount Sinai. Until here. Now, keep in mind, if, if you've forgotten, that the children of Israel are still at Mount Sinai. They haven't left yet. They've been receiving instructions for quite a long time. And they will continue to be at Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 8, when they finally set forth. And uh, God says, okay, up, you've been at this mountain long enough, and get going, right? But meanwhile, they're at Mount Sinai. But again, this isn't a geography lesson. The question is, the rabbis ask, why Shemitah, why sabbatical year Davka is the first time we've got here at Mount Sinai? And that becomes the question to hold. What's so important? Now, I have my thoughts about it for sure because I've studied this Parsha a lot, but I just want to, anybody have any thoughts? Yes, Midbar Sinai is mentioned multiple times. So, about the Midbar, the, the deserts, there are uh, legends that they were blooming in ancient times. Yes. So the Shemitah could be connected with at that time having had growth, vegetation. Okay, but here it says, when you enter the land that I assign to you, then you shall observe a Shemitah. So they are not associating the wilderness with... Mm-hmm the sabbatical year. Um, they are specifically associating with the when you're in the land of Israel. Yes, Bruce? It seems that it's always confused me a little bit. I never understood just what the meaning of the sabbatical year was, what, what, what it was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems as though there's something sort of mystical about it, other, sort of like the temple must be cleansed you know, things like that. Uh, every seventh year, why? Do you okay. have thoughts? Oh, lots, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My thought is that it's um, a sort of an allegory for the week of creation. You know, and on the seventh day, 
you rest. Mm -hmm. And it's also a time to reflect on those who don't have as much as you do or, you know, the creatures in the field or, you know, other things. Seven is the number that means stop and reflect. Seven is the number that means you can't uh, make, you don't, can't lord it over your, the servants who work for you, the, your, your household, the, your, your, your pack animals. Seven is the number. The seventh month, if we were just reading an Emor last week, the first month is Nisan. But in the first day of the seventh month, we were talking you last week, you have to blow the shofar, and then on the tenth day, you have a special day of, um, of atonement so that you can celebrate the harvest festival on the fifteenth day. The seventh month is a sabbatical month. So every seven, it, seven is the, the mystical number, the, num- the number that our tradition assigns to um, the wholeness of creation. And we've talked about this before, but it, we, you should never, I never get tired of talking about it. You should note that the wor- word Sheva, seven, as it appears in Torah without any vowels, could be read Sova, which means satiation or fulfillment. Right? So maybe there's some, some important connection there. Uh, Sheva is also an oath. Uh, uh, a vow. Uh, Be'er Sheva is the well of the oath. It's not actually the seven wells, it's the well of the oath. So Sheva is an interesting word in Hebrew. I would say its various meanings come after the, its importance. So if you, as I've taught, so I'll be repeating myself, but if you want to understand what the Torah is trying to teach. You start with chapter 1 of Genesis, and then you follow what 7 means throughout. Where 7 came from, we're, we're just intuiting, we're guessing. Um, the, any, anybody have their favorite ideas? The menorah has 7 branches because 7 is that number fulfillment. Is it the seven colors of the rainbow? Is it the seven planets? Is it the seven seas? Is it, or is seven just a number that, uh, um, that, I don't know. Because again, as I've taught before, uh, there seems to be no evidence that seven as a holy cycle of time predates ancient Israel. The Babylonians have no record of a seven day week, let alone a Sabbath where everyone should rest. Um, there's no evidence that anyone but the ancient, our ancient Israeli ancestors um, came up with this idea that seven is the cycle of time that um, reminds you that God created the heaven and earth and that you are but residents upon it. So, that, so the sabbatical year was... We know that it was practiced in ancient Israel, and um, uh, so what I wanted to do, actually, I have this terrific essay by Rabbi David Seidenberg. Um, let's let's read it a little. Yeah, take one and pass it along.
Why does Shemitah, what does Shemitah, the sabbatical year, have to do with Mount Sinai? This question was famously asked by one of the oldest midrashim, Sifra, and it has been pondered over for centuries. The question arises from the way the portion about the sabbatical year is introduced in the Torah. God spoke to, Yudhe spoke to Moshe in Mount Sinai, saying, etc., etc., just what we were reading. If all the commandments were given at Sinai, the Midrash wonders. He's not quoting the Midrash in full here, but that's what the Midrash wonders. Why is Mount Sinai only mentioned here? And the answer that we can give today is deceptively simple. The whole purpose of the covenant at Sinai is to create a society that observed Shemitah. Shemitah is sabbatical. It is in a land where Shemitah is observed that human beings will learn to respect the earth herself by remembering that none of us can own her. For the land is mine, God declares, and you are strangers and settlers with me. That is the climax of this section that we're reading. So I'll read on and then we'll look at it again. And if none of us can own the land, cannot sell it and buy it, then what what we do own is ultimately not ours then the difference between rich and poor is not just the way things are. Then a person cannot be owned, and the difference between slave and master is not real and not loved by God. In the sabbatical year, all debts are canceled, and the land is ownerless. In the seventh sabbatical year, the Jubilee, all slaves are freed, including those who did not exercise their right to go free after the sixth year of their own service, and every family returns to Achuzato, its original land holding, becoming equal to every other family. Okay, let's pause there and go back to the Torah portion. Because we're going to read here not just about the seventh year, when you do not own the land and you just let it grow, and not only that, you, your male and female slaves, the indentured servant among you, your cattle, and the beasts in your land. What's the difference between behemah and chayah? Anybody know between cattle and beasts? The beasts are undomesticated. Wild. Wild. So not just your beasts. In other words, take the gate down. It's not your land this year. It's so deep. Right? And if the you know, if Mr. Groundhog, you know, wants it. Oh, no, no, no. We can't go that far, Jonathan. <laughs> the deer. The deer, yeah. <laughs> okay, just this once. Oh, boy, this is such a big commandment. It is, to, yes. I have a question about something I don't understand. Sure. Well, no, you still don't work on the Sabbath day. You don't, but can you harvest on the Sabbath day on that Sabbath No, absolutely day? not. Um, that's a kind of labor that you do the six days of the week. So in a sabbatical year, the Sabbath day continues to cycle every seven days. So during the Sabbath year, where does your food come from? You'll have to have stored it up. Stored it up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also you're allowed to pick whatever, forage and pick whatever grows. No, it's your, your vineyard is going to continue to bear. But you can't tend it and prune it. You let it go. 
so so you can so you have to you it, it requires an, a, a the whole society has to be in on this, and the Talmud treats this very carefully about how every year, the, the Talmud describes how this was done, and every year uh, you would bring a portion of your produce to a storehouse, and there was a communal storehouse so that you would all have enough during the sabbatical year. In other words, they put in mechanisms, but it's not just a sabbatical for the land. If you've put enough away, it's a sabbatical year for the community. It's such a profound concept that it's kind of amazing to us. Um, because remember, land ownership in ancient Israel did, did not exist. The land was on loan to you from the God. And so just like uh, the idea of private property is not a concept of this agrarian society. so. The other place that sabbatical is discussed is in Deuteronomy. There, it's a year of release of all debts. So that not only do you release the land, but you also forgive debts. And so it's this radical, profound idea that every six years, you give up your you, 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 you loosen the yoke on your animals, on your, on your loans, on your everything. This mirrors the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall make the Sabbath day holy. You shall not labor, nor, neither you, nor your servants, nor the stranger in your midst, nor your sons or daughters, nor the pack animals who work for you. Because in six days God created the world, and in seven days God rested, and then in Deuteronomy, and because you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and I freed you from slavery. So the rationale is the core of the Torah. There is God is the creator, and God is the liberator. And they're both linked in to this idea of why, what the seventh day is supposed to engender in us, if we observe it. And the seventh year, Bob? The seventh of the seven is the Jubilee. Actually, the fiftieth year is the Jubilee. So seven times seven is 49. And then the next year is what's called the Jubilee year. I thought we are in a Jubilee year. We are not, but, or I would have read it more in the press. Where did you see it? In the forward and elsewhere. What I'm hearing is that because this is the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, right. some Jews are calling it a Jubilee year. But 1967 wasn't no. a Jubilee year. No, they're using the counting to say it's, this is a very significant year because it says on the 50th year you have to release people so they can go back to their land holding. So it becomes, you know, what are we going to do with land that we're occupying that once belonged to someone else? These are big questions people are asking, yep. but I'm not going there today. Okay. We're in the second year of the cycle, I think. That's right. The sa sabbatical year was... The year was 2015. Correct. We are at, they, we, we're still counting the sabbatical cycle, and the actual sabbatical year was two years ago. Okay. Um,
just that the, the whole idea of a jubilee year was uh, new to me. Yes. I never had that as part of my teachings or education. Right. Right, so that's and it I'm certainly thinking. hasn't been formally marked in thousands of years. Uh, um, but that's a fascinating concept, too. It sure is, and that's what comes next here. Uh, so, um, let's see, did I answer your question, Anne? Yes, thank you. Okay, good, good. So let's, it, yes, Ruth? It marries, it's time and space. Is what I keep right. Oh, right. Like the translation of, of um, the second line of the Shema, right through time and space. Mm -hmm. Your glory shines, and and goes also to Heschel, that your kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. like a, a palace in time is right. That sensibility, mm -hmm. and this is really um, very much a marriage, right, of time and space. Nicely put, nicely put. So then let's read about. The um, Jubilee year, because it says in verse 8, on page 850, you shall count off seven weeks of years. And in Hebrew, it's important to hear, Vesafartelecha Sheva Shabbatot Shanim, Sheva Shanim, Sheva Pe'amim. Now, that is, and you shall count off seven. Sabbaths of years, seven years, seven times. sheva shabbatot hashanim, and these years of seven Sabbaths of years to you will be forty-nine years. So again, Torah, sheva, 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 Sabbath, sheva, Shabbat, Shabbatot, sheva. It's not only alliterative, but it also the way Torah is written is that they want you to hear seven. Um, and then you shall blow a shofar through on the, in the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, on Yom Kippur. You shall blow a shofar throughout all your land. So that would be a day you would never hear the shofar except... At the end, right? And uh, that's right. But on Yom Kippur, once every fifty years, we get your attention. Yeah, you proclaim the Jubilee year. It's so cool. Um, and then it says, "And you shall sanctify the fiftieth year that way." And then this famous line, "Ukratem dror ba'aretz lechol yoshvecha." You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants, says our translation. Dror is translated on the Liberty Bell from the King James translation as you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants thereof. That is the line inscribed on the Liberty Bell because dror means release and it means liberty. I mean, they're sort of synonymous, right? Um, and in this incredible release of the Jubilee here, each person shall return to their original land holding, and each person shall return to their family. 
That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may only eat the growth direct from the field. I'll go on a little, and then we'll talk about this. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to your holding. When you sell property to your neighbor, or buy any from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. In buying from your neighbor, you shall deduct only for the number of years since the jubilee. And in selling land to you, that person shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. The more such years, the higher the price you pay. The fewer such years, the lower the price. For what is being sold to you is not the land, but a number of harvests. And then it says again, do not wrong one another. But fear your God, for I, the Eternal, am your God. You shall... So, this is what... This is getting to the heart of the matter. The land is God's. You don't own the land in perpetuity because you're human beings. You're not God. You're creatures. And what you get to do is lease the land in order to, uh, in order to retrieve its produce. You can farm the land. You can harvest and thus sustain yourself, but you don't own the land. And if, in this incredibly um, um, utopian vision, that's how I look at it, this utopian vision of a society that accepts this and knows that there has to be a permanent step, a check on every seventh everything against human greed and self, and, uh, against greed, right, um, then you, get, you have to reset every seventh day. You're not in charge of your employees, and you're not in charge of your animals. You're all just creatures. Then every seventh month of a year, it's, it's, you, it's a, you, you have a month off, so does everybody else, and you purge yourself, and you celebrate the harvest. It's a month of Sabbath. Unfortunately, that's when school starts around here, and it makes it hard for us to enjoy it. And then every seventh year, you release debts. You, re you um, let the land rest. You're not, you don't own it. It's God's. And then, after 47 sevens, you do a special 50th year in which, if you have in the course of the years, and the rest of this chapter describes this in detail, acquired someone else's land holding because they fell into debt and they became indentured to you, after 50, you get to enjoy their harvests. You get to accumulate wealth. You can accumulate wealth. And at the end of 50 years, that land goes back to the family that lost it because they had a hard time. And they get to start over. It's completely out there, <coughs> right? It's not communism because uh, you get to, it's not about being rich or poor. You can get really rich if you're lucky over your 50 years. And you have to give away all your money at the end of the 50 years, right? It's, it's a reset so that everyone can get a chance again. 
And the rationale behind it is that you don't, know, you don't own the earth. You're guests here. You're here by God's grace. It's fantastic. Yeah. What if, what if we uh, had some form of this uh, embedded in our, in our social and economic well, norms? Jonathan, it does suggest bankruptcy. We oh, do, yes. We do have that. The bankruptcy laws and the seven years to all come, all were established by uh, reading Torah, reading Bible. Another question. Not to mention sabbatical years that academics get. It all comes from here. Did the surrounding societies have anything that approached this that might have been, nope. you know, we took it from and it was sort of similar? Nope. This is from the Torah. And they were the Romans, I remember reading, thought how just disgusting it was that they took a day off every week and it just wouldn't work. Yeah. It seemed as though it was really like kind of hated. We are, we can trace many biblical laws to being connected in lineage to the laws of Hammurabi and to Egyptian uh, law codes. And this is, this is the Jewish genius. This is it. You know, what it connects to for me is the, in its spirit, is what other indigenous societies know about our relationship to the earth and creation that empires forget, right? Empires forget this because it's not in their interest to remember it because they are just piling on the power and the control. But an agrarian society that is not imperial lives in a different relationship to the earth. Yes, Bob? Uh, I think I've read about this in a political science sense that what is being invented here is a way to keep a balance so that the rich don't get totally rich and the poor don't get totally oppressed. Correct. And so there's a less likelihood of revolution and uh, revolt. Well, there's a, let's put it in the positive, there's a greater likelihood of a just society. Well, yeah, I was not talking just, I was talking political science. Yeah, but that's not why this is here. This is here, this is utopian. This is for the principle of justice. It's not for the principle of social control. It, on the contrary, the point is that we don't get to exert social control. It's God's business, not ours. So that's why I put it in that frame. Yeah, I, I understand that, but I was trying to present it as a, another gift from the Jewish people, as an invention of how to balance the, the politics of the society. Mm -hmm. Correct, I agree. Okay. And the way the Torah would put it is how to balance our, our uh, uh, base yeah. instincts with the common good. That is the whole question of the Torah. That's right. And that's why in chapter, in the beginning of Genesis, when Cain kills Abel, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And that rhetorical question sets the whole Torah in motion. Where the answer, if humans don't figure out that the answer is yes, we're screwed. Uh, yes. So it's a utopian ideal. Was it really done? The, if so, for how long? The sabbatical year was practiced. There's plenty of evidence for that. 
the Jubilee here, there's no evidence. That doesn't mean it wasn't practiced, but we have no extra biblical evidence. And no, in other words, for instance, when you read the Book of Kings, when they're already in the land, it never says, and it was a Jubilee year, and everyone went back to their holdings. It wow. says it was a sabbatical year, but it doesn't. So it's not, it's not clear whether this was ever, in fact, manifested. Um, uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't, but it also doesn't mean that it was. Uh, Karen? Now, let's say like Shabbat or like um, Tishrei, you know, these, these um, we took those with us on the diaspora. Yes. But the Shemitah is only in a prescribed land, is that correct? The Shemitah, as a mitzvah, was understood by the rabbis of the Talmud to only pertain to the land of Israel because it says, for them, for us, I'm expanding our frame. For them, the land of Israel was God's land that God had given to them. So if we weren't in our land, then the Shemitah laws didn't pertain. So Shemitah as a practice never extended into the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the forgiving of debts, which is the other part of Shemitah, uh, in the first, by the first century, by the time of Hillel, had become, um, in the Roman Empire, the economy was uh, cosmopolitan enough and uh, currency-driven enough that um, it's, the Talmud relates that people were not loaning in the fifth or sixth year of a Shemitah cycle because they would just have to forgive it. Mm-hmm. And that meant that the credit economy was collapsing. So practically, that wasn't working either. And Hillel in, instituted a rabbinic ordinance, which is an unusual step where the uh, rabbis don't just say, the Torah really says this, and that's why we're doing it this way, but say, we got to change things. Does that make sense? Usually the rabbis always want to find a, a, a place in the Torah where they can hang their um, decision on. But occasionally they will make a takana that says, this isn't working. Hillel does that. He has enough prestige to do that. And he institutes a legal fiction that allows you to carry debts and over the seventh year, because the economy was, would, was grinding to a halt. And so the, the, even the forgiving of debts became uh, uh, vestigial in, in, in Jewish uh, practice. So when Jews in the late 18, 19th century started moving back to the land of Israel, religious Zionists said, hey, we can practice this mitzvah again. And so, starting in the late 1800s, led by Rav Kook, who was incredibly excited about this, he was the chief rabbi of uh, Palestine under the British mandate, but even before that, put forward that it's time to start practicing Shemitah again. And since a certain date in 1880, when that was said, we'll declare this as the first sabbatical year, that's how we've been counting since then. It's kind of remarkable when you think about it that because this wasn't practiced outside the land of Israel, it was on suspension. And then as soon as they got back in the 19th century, you know, 1900 years after it had ceased to be um, uh, relevant, they reinstituted it. It's just, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, let me just say another thing about that, which is to say that when I taught a class on sabbatical, two years ago during the sabbatical year, 
we explored all this and I put forward my suggestion that in an era of global consciousness that just as so many other aspects of Judaism that I want to universalize, I want to extend the idea of sabbatical beyond the land of Israel. Right? How, we, how, we, how we enact it is a challenge, but um, to make it part of our consciousness, even if we're not in the land of Israel, would be my global Judaism step with it, if that makes sense. So, Buria? How much what? How was it enforced? How was it enforced? According to the Talmud, um, there was enough social agreement, there was enough sort of um, uh, mechanisms in place for storing food and redistributing it that I imagine it was enforced through the social compact that uh, existed at the time uh, amongst all the farmers because they had a shared understanding that the land had been given to them by God. And this was, this was the deal. So I don't know that for a fact, but that's what I assume. What do you think? Was it by tribes or by towns, like villages? Or I don't know. Good question. Good question. I think we should write a novel about it. I think it would be great. Gail? In what way is it observed in Israel now? In two ways. Um, if you are... Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox, you will not... One way that it happens is that, just like when you sell your chametz to a non-Jew so that it's not in your possession, some, some Jewish farmers have non-Jewish partners and they sell the deed to their land for a dollar and so the land can produce and it's approved sabbatical produce. So they don't stop tilling. Um, so that's one, that's like, that's like the Chametz law, same idea. <laughs> Another thing that happens among some stricter ones is that they do not, they don't plant or, or, or reap their land that year. Uh, but that's economically ruinous because we don't have a society that can function that way. So that really hardly ever happens. So instead what happens is the ultra-Orthodox will buy fruit only from outside the land of Israel. <laughs> That's what I experienced. Okay. So it's not really enforced the way... No. However, and this is the good news, in progressive elements of Israeli society, they are creating ways to observe this. For instance, a loan relief organization was organized, and it lobbied the government to release the debts of uh, very poor people in the sabbatical year. And they had success. Some 10,000 families had their debts forgiven. So there are ways that a modern society could legislate to make this meaningful rather than just uh, uh, fulfilling the letter of the law. So, and that's just one example. There were a bunch of beautiful examples in modern Israel of progressive groups taking the spirit of the sabbatical year and trying to apply it to our contemporary economy. Okay. So it is happening, and it's pretty cool. Yeah? So you mentioned global Judaism where we can practice outside of Israel. How, how would that be done? Um, first of all, with consciousness. What does it mean 
to sanctify the number seven in our lives and to make it part of the rhythm of our lives where for our spiritual growth and therefore the way we treat the world, we understand that the seventh of anything, year, month, or, de- or week, or day, is there for us to restore a right relationship to the world around us, to check our desires to acquire and to build and to accomplish and rebalance them against our awareness that we are part of the one, not just a separate actor upon the earth, but that we're, 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 we're made of the earth. That for me is the, is the first key. Then, in terms of legislating, uh, if we, I, I'd say for us, the Torah is more of an inspiration than it can be a legislation. Yeah. And, uh, but the inspiration is there. And the practice of how we Jews mark time is still intact. And so we have this possibility. That's what I, w- I would say. But when I say global, I also say that this, this beautiful uh, Torah was composed at a time where global consciousness wasn't... It's an oxymoron. It's like, what, they, what did they know? They knew their people and the peoples around them. They knew their land. And so they spoke to that reality. You know, as far as we know, for peoples of that time, the edge of the earth was where you fell off. But now we have a different conception. And I feel like it's our responsibility to translate this understanding into our own conception. That's what I mean. Um, We know, and what's beautiful about it is just as they knew that the cycle of growth and harvest was dependent on the earth and the rains, and it was a system. They knew that. We now know that the entire global ecology is an intertwined system, so all we have to do is extrapolate. Mm -hmm. It makes it more complex, but it doesn't change the principle. That's what I mean by that. Gail, did you get to speak? Yes, I asked a question. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Mm-hmm. Well, we are planting tomatoes right now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it's good to get your hands in the earth. It changes your relationship to things. Mm-hmm. It really does. So let's read a little more. Verse eighteen: You shall observe my laws and faithfully keep my rules, that you may live upon the land in security. Levetach. In security and safety. The land shall yield its fruit, and you shall eat your... Oh, I skipped a paragraph. Sorry. Oh, did I? Do not... Yeah, right, right. The land shall yield its fruit, and you shall eat your fill, and you shall live upon it in security. Repeated. And should you ask, but what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we can't sow or gather in our crops? I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it shall yield a crop sufficient for three years so that when you sow in the eighth year after a sabbatical, you will still be eating old grain of that crop. You will be eating the old until the ninth year, until its crops come in. Okay, so that's God's promise. Uh, Please, I hope that's true. But then, verse 23, don't turn the page yet. This is crucial, because this is the summation of this passage. But the land cannot be sold in perpetuity, or beyond reclaim. Key. Li Haaretz. 
for the land is mine. You are but strangers, gerim v'toshavim atem imadi. You are but strangers resident with me. Gerim v'toshavim, uh, don't think of stranger as a, uh, in biblical terms, it means your guests, your, your, your sojourners. That would be the right word. You are sojourners here with me. Uh, and throughout the land that you hold, you must provide the land be redeemed in the 50th year. So here is the statement uh, that we would say, didn't that come from some Native American uh, saying? Hayinu. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, for the land is mine. You cannot sell the land in perpetuity. That is an absurdity. Who gave you the idea that you own the land? I feel like we have to repeat this over and over and over again. Now, today, we have deeds. We own land. But what it would mean to take that to heart and be a, understand that your ownership was, in fact, as an um, agent for Mother Earth, and therefore, it's your job to be a good steward of that land while it is in your care. Right? That's the idea of how we would say it in modern terms. Because it's your land doesn't mean you have the air rights over it and you can dig up anything under it. Right? That's not what it means to own the earth. That's a, that's a terrible human um, uh, hallucination that besets us all the time uh, by you know, drilling a hole in your end of the rowboat. You know that, that joke, that story? It's actually a Talmudic story that there are these people in a rowboat and one guy is drilling a hole under his seat and they say, what are you doing? He said, I'm just drilling it under my seat. My seat? <laughs> my territory. Right. And that's, um, that's, in, that, uh, that's somewhere in the Talmud. Uh, that's a great story, isn't it? It's the same for the earth. We're, 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 we're sojourners here, and it's, a, it's our gift that we get to be here, not the other way around. So that's why this is my favorite portion. Yeah? So let's say... I am occupying a piece of land. Yes. Um, what, uh, what if Ruth wants to come and use my land? Yeah. Don't, doesn't she have because to be... Because I, I, I don't own it. Oh, right. Well, that's why this is so different. You do hold the lease. Mm -hmm. No, you don't... See, it's not a radical uh, communitarianism. It's not like everything belongs to everybody. Everything belongs to God. But you hold a lease for 50 years. So when the Jewish National Fund was started at the first Zionist Congress, um, at the first Zionist Congress, they formed the Jewish National Fund based on this idea that any land that the Zionist, World Zionist Organization acquired in the land of Israel belonged to the entire Jewish people. And that is true to this day, um, which is why the Karen Kayemet L'Israel, the Jewish National Fund, controls so much of the land of Israel. And that land, but that was a profoundly secular 
understanding based on the people who were at the Zionist Congress. For them, the idea that God owned the earth, they weren't thinking about that. But they were thinking about the idea that, that the land of Israel was our land and therefore the land that we purchased would not be belonging to any single individual. And so the kibbutzim were given 99-year leases. And still in Israel today, you don't, you, even if you've built your beautiful house on your quarter acre, you know, with the red tile roof, you have like a long-term lease. You, it's just a different ownership system in Israel. That's another way that this translated into modernity. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, certainly all the forests are on Jewish national fund lands. They belong to us, the Jewish people, which is pretty cool when you think about it. Yeah? I'm just thinking, I never thought of it, but the Palestinian and the occupied territories, the Palestinian view, this is my land, it's been my family's land. Right. It's a very different... I, I well, it is, it is and it isn't. I mean... That's where the story gets very complicated. They are, as farmers, attached to their ancestral land, not because it's my land, but because it's our land holding. And um, so they've been farming it for hundreds of years. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's not a sense, the ownership is a sense of having been there forever, as far as forever feels like. very similar on both sides. Yeah, and so when the Jewish National Fund started purchasing land, they purchased it legally, but they were purchasing it frequently from absentee landowners in uh, Istanbul, in Constantinople, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's a very complicated history. Uh, and uh, let's not go there either, because <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's, I don't want to talk about this, Beria. No, that's not. Okay, good. <laughs> there is a modern day, modern way uh, to claim what you believe is yours by somebody else. On my property, there is a stream that comes down from the castle. And I see two guys coming with uh, fish, fishing poles. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, you know, this is private property. He says, but the river isn't. <laughs> I've always wondered about that. The water flowing over your <laughs> land. It's like, so I've always felt like, well, what if I just, when I see those private property signs, what if I just float on the water? <laughs> you know, maybe that I'm not on your property. I know what you mean. Yes, I have to convince them. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. uh -huh. Well, on the, sh the shore on Long Island where the bay comes in, um, you've got six feet in, whether it's private yeah, property or not, six, right. six feet from the high tide you're allowed to be on. I know. And then the National Seashore of Cape Cod or down on, that is our country's, you know, that belongs to all the American people. And that also... That's why the national park system and the whole system of uh, national lands is so magnificent. It's this idea that not only is that, our, is that our land to enjoy, but it's also our land to preserve and take care of and protect. Beautiful concept. It requires, it requires a common um, ethic. ethic. Yeah. And so that goes back to how did the sabbatical year work back then until it didn't? Because they had that shared ethic just like our systems work until they don't, when the, eth the shared ethic breaks down. Right, right. Um, so, let's go back to uh, David Seidenberg's writing for a little bit. Um, I'm, in the I'm in the final paragraph on that page. Only in such a society where property does not designate the right to use up 
what one owns, but rather a kind of fleeting relationship to what one cares for, can people learn the true meaning of justice. Only in such a society can people learn to share their wealth, nurture the poor alongside everyone else, relieve debts, end hunger, and respect the fundamental human right to be free. The sabbatical year was the guarantor and the ultimate fulfillment of the justice that Torah teaches us to practice in everyday life. And it was a justice that embraced not just fellow human beings, but the land and all life. The sabbatical year was the ultimate meaning of rest, which we practice every week in the observance of Shabbat. It was the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Shabbat Shabbaton. Um, <clears throat> so, the Torah is given us in order to instruct us how to create a society that will not take us back to Egypt. Right? That's the meta, that's the, that's the giant metaphor of the Torah. Don't go back to Egypt where Pharaoh, what happens with Joseph and Pharaoh? Remember, there's seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. There's that seven again, which we'll find everywhere. During the seven years of plenty, Joseph sets up this system where giant storehouses take all the grain. During the seven years of famine, during the first years, people pay for the grain. Then it says when they ran out of money, they, they lease, they, well, what's the word? They, their land. They, use, they mortgage their land. And then when that was used up, they indentured themselves to Pharaoh. And at the end of seven years, the Torah says, the entire land of Egypt and all its peoples belonged to Pharaoh. Right? That's really significant. The fact that Joseph engineered that he enslaved the Egyptians. is really meta, meta. Like, uh, is that why then his, we were enslaved in Egypt as a payback for what Joseph did? That's another discussion. But... Um, that's how, by the time the Israelites are enslaved, Pharaoh owns Egypt and all its people are indentured to him. They're all serfs. They're all sharecroppers. And that is precisely the society that we are supposed to not recreate now that we've been freed. And the, the number seven is the number that reminds us of that continuously, forever, on a cycle of seven throughout time. That's, so that gets towards the answer of the Midrash question. What does Shemitah have to do with Mount Sinai? That's, that's sort of, we're answering that Midrash all through, that question all through this class, right? Uh, so I should also point out, in terms of the connection to Egypt, that if you look on page 853, are we there already? Yeah. yeah. At verse um, 39. If your kin under you continue in straits and must be given over to you in indenturedness, servitude, do not subject them to the treatment of a slave. Remaining with you as a hired or bound laborer, they shall serve with you only until the Jubilee year then they, along with any children, shall be free of your authority. They shall go back to their family and return to the ancestral holding, for they are my servants, whom I freed from the land of Egypt. 
and they may not give themselves over into permanent servitude. And then verse 43, You shall not rule over them ruthlessly. Now we're not sure what farach means, except that it only comes up twice in the Torah. Exodus chapter 1, where it says, and Pharaoh, um, uh, uh, I marked the page, sorry to remember. Um, the Egyptians ruthlessly imposed a slavery upon the Israelites. That's where the first time we hear this word, Befarach, and this is the next time we hear it. So if you're, again, just like we're supposed to hear an echo of Mount Sinai, we're supposed to hear an echo of what was wrong with Egypt. And that word Farach is then repeated two more times in this description of how you should not treat those who are in bondage, in, 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 in indentured servitude to you, uh, that they are fundamentally human beings. And that again is what the seventh of everything reminds us. Because on the Sabbath you can't rule over them. They are free people just like you. You're, you're creatures together. Uh, so that word befarach is really important because, again, it's the only other time we hear it. Uh, so then let's look, um, let's continue on the second page of David Seidenberg. After telling us outright that Sinai is about Shemitah, or, or sabbatical, the Torah also gives us other pointers to Shemitah's ultimate significance. Failure to let the land rest is one of only two mitzvot that are described as being the cause of exile from the land, the other being idolatry. While the purpose of exile itself is described as a way to force human beings to let the earth rest. If we do not observe Shemitah, still the land will enjoy her Sabbaths. All the days of her being emptied, she will rest what she didn't rest during your Sabbaths when you were dwelling on her. That is in the next chapter. We're not going to have time to cover today, but in the next chapter it says, if you don't do this, the land is going to spit you out. And then it's going to take the Sabbaths that you fail to give it. Um, and I think about that a lot in terms of what might happen to the human species. At some point, the Earth's not going to die, but it may not be able to sustain us anymore. And then it'll take the Sabbaths it needs to be able to get itself back in shape to sustain life again. I mean, that's, I, I, I don't want to be too grandiose, but I think of it that way. It might grow tall trees and inaccessible growth. Well, what I was going to say is that if we completely denude and uh, essentially suck our environment dry of uh, resource and imbalance it so much, because we're not, never giving it a chance to rebalance itself, which we know ecosystems do when they're allowed to, then ultimately we may make the land uninhabitable for us because we did not give it its proper rest. That's another understanding in today's global and ecological terms of what the Torah is trying to teach us. That's what I'm suggesting. Um, I have a question. Yeah. We believe that the Torah is the original document of the history of the Jews. We do? Yeah, I do. Uh, you do? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah, I didn't study it any previously. But, you know, it just strikes me, it might, this might be way out of the world, 
but talking about holding the Jews slaves and freeing them and all that. It's like it did it create the atmosphere of separating the Jews from the general population and doing to them what they can because of their minority, being a minority? Um, I don't think so. But I think this aspect of Judaism, once it once Jews were dispersed among the Christian Empire, Roman Empire, these kinds of descriptions were used to single out the Jews, but because, as I said, the Christian Jewish thing, which is really where anti-Semitism originates, is the is one of the worst sibling rivalries in history. So I don't know. It's a big question, Bria. Because the Africans well, that's the, the point. Chinese right, they would have no reason to. That's why I'm saying that anti-Semitism is a product of a particular conflict uh, that has now spread beyond the confines of the Christian world. But uh, so I, I don't like to make uh, cosmic statements about yeah. phenomena like that. Okay. Um, the Torah is clear. I'm in the second paragraph. It is possible for us to have Shabbat without giving the land rest. But doing Shabbat just for ourselves, even just for God, is not enough. Exile happens because the land's right to rest comes before our rest. There's another clue to the importance of Shemitah. This is what I wanted to get to, a more subtle one. During the Shemitah year, we are commanded to let the wild animals eat freely from our fields. It, we read that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, your servants, your hard workers, your strangers, the, be the your animals, and the wild animals, your beasts, your, your, your domesticated animals, and the wild animals. All of her produce will be for eating. The rabbis further expanded the meaning of this law so that everyone was required to leave any gates to their fields open so that one could not even eat in one's house food that was not also growing in the fields so that human beings and wild and domestic animals were eating the same food. Hmm. Think about the only other time when humans and all the animals ate alongside each other in peace, according to the Torah. When? Where? It was the Garden of Eden. Before so many tragedies befell humanity, before the flood, before the relationship between humans and animals was torn asunder, before humans exiled themselves from the earth, from the garden and the fiery of returning sword was there, held there by, cher by cher the cherubim so that we couldn't get back into the garden. Uh, and we would only eat by the sweat of our brow. That's Adam's uh, uh, curse. Um, before humans exiled themselves from the earth, after the flood, the animals live in mortal terror of human beings. Because after the flood, it says you can eat animals. Before that, humans apparently are only commanded to eat what grows on the trees. Uh, and uh, after the flood, God makes a covenant, not with human beings, but with all the animals and all everything on earth, a covenant not to destroy the earth because of humanity. Um, so that's why I said utopian. The idea of Shabbat, which in Jewish tradition is understood as a taste of the world to come, a taste of the Garden of Eden, because the world to come is a synonym for Garden of Eden. Uh, or 
I'm forgetting the line in the liturgy that says, and it's like a taste of Gan Eden. Um, when Isaiah says in, this is the Haftorah for the eighth day of Pesach in chapter 11, um, uh, where shall I start? Uh, Justice shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his waists. He shall judge the poor with equity and decide with justice for the lowly of the land. Uh, and the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the kid, the calf, the beast of prey, and the fatling together with a little boy to herd them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion like the ox shall eat straw, and a babe shall play over a viper's hole, and an infant will pass his hand over an adder's den, and all of my sacred mountain, nothing evil or vile shall be done, for the land shall be filled with knowledge of the one, the infinite one, as the waters cover the sea. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Torah. And it's a passage of um, an imagining of, of paradise, right? I think it's quite intentional that the sabbatical year, you opened all your gates and you imagined and then lived as though you were in paradise just picking what was on the trees. Imagine what that would do for a society. Rich and poor, distinctions disappear. Anyone go on anyone's property. It's an astonishing vision, this sabbatical year. And it's a vision of before the fall. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the idea that God is always trying to get across to us in the Torah is how to restore that sense of intimate wholeness. What does it mean to be a goy kadosh, a holy people? It's a place of shalom, a place of where conflicts have been uh, eradicated, a place where justice is pursued, a place where the orphan and the widow are given the same care that anyone else needs, a place where equity is established. I think it's fair to say that this, along with the number seven, and completely intertwined, is Judaism's contribution to the world. When we were watching Abraham Joshua Heschel on videotape on Tuesday, he was essentially saying this, and it's been sticking with me all week, that the, the Jewish contribution to the world is a vision of equity. This idea that we might be able to establish this. And not just this, that we might, but that it's commanded to us. So that guilt or a sense of conscience or a sense of demand, as Heschel says, is implicit in being a Jew. But that doesn't mean it's all toil. Because the Sabbath is when we're all kings and queens. Right? It's the day when we restore our majesty and our dignity as well as our humility. Right? Because we're all equally dust and ashes and we're all equally children of God. Um, I think Judaism has a crucial message 
and that this is the heart of it. Breuria? And we brought the day of rest to the world. Exactly. We brought the day of rest to the world. And Breuria, I hope you understand that everything I'm saying is what comes along with the day of rest. Yes. Yes, Gail. Do not covet. Do not covet. And, right. and power, our society, this would be so revolutionary. There's it's no utterly revolutionary. Our society, which is so built around wanting more, endlessly. And that you're almost, when, when, when George W. said, show them you're not afraid by going shopping. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was the worst of saying American, right. but it, it's so much part of yeah. That's right. Capitalism is, de- capitalism is dependent on our craving and on creating needs that we didn't even know we had so that we'll keep craving. And yeah. in itself is such a diminution of our freedom. That's right. We, are, we become slaves to, to, slaves to our cravings. Yeah. That's right. And, and when that's our only value, now we're just living into logical conclusions. That's right. Where we, rape, where we rape the land until there's nothing right. left. Exactly. That is the conclusion, and that's the critique of capitalism and the correct critique, unchecked by other, other value systems. And, and because this is one year, it's not saying don't build houses, don't right. just say, but keep it checked. Again. Right. Yeah. Remember what really matters. Mm-hmm. You know? yep. And what else matters. Yep. Right. Yep. This is crucial Torah for us to translate into, into our, our present. Absolutely. I, mean, I was blanching when you read the news, and we're, as a collective, we're called consumers. Right, right. well that happened, that happened sometime in the last 30 years to me, because I remember when that show Marketplace came on, mm-hmm. uh, a half hour devoted, of news devoted to the marketplace, I said, what, what? And that's when I realized, <laughs> that's when I realized that we were starting to shift from being called citizens, citizens. Right. to being right. called consumers. Right. And it's happened. We are now considered primarily consumers rather than citizens. Uh, And um, the vocabulary has shifted, and so has our perspective, because words create our reality. We're no longer patients. We're consumers of health care. That's right. We're just thinking that providers and consumers. Right. Right. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But that's the agreed culture. Right. So instead of a vision of everyone sharing, we have movies like The Purge, where it's 24 hours. I didn't see it. I don't like horror movies. But it's this this scene in America where every year for 24 hours, all laws are suspended. And so the rich people lock themselves in their houses and the poor people terrorize them. And it's like this series of horror movies. But it's like in that, what was that movie about, about what happened? The meltdown, the financial meltdown. That oh yeah, um, what was that called? About 2008. Not the guy on Wall Street. Not no, not the Wolf of Wall Street. No, no this Street. was a the short, the big short. Yeah, the big short, which was a great movie. I know. It's a, what, did you see it? I know. I wanted to see it. It's a wonderfully done movie. So I don't. I don't know if I should close your ears. No, <laughs> I don't care. Moment where they they're interviewing the two guys who have figure, are figuring out what's going on are interviewing this is based on all the all the records this is about the 2008 crash and if you haven't seen it such a well done so a i heard movie. and they're trying to explain movie. what happened in they're the course of the movie starting and so 
talking I'll be to in a few minutes, Desiree. Guys who were um, part, who, who just had been part of, of the feeding frenzy of real estate. And so they're telling them how they, how they took advantage of all these people and kind of chuckling about it. And so the one guy pulls his friends aside and said, why are they confessing to us, right? And his friends said, they're not confessing, they're gloating, they're boasting, right? They're not confessing, they're mm -hmm. boasting. Mm -hmm. That was a very beautiful moment and a very key thing to understand. It's a very good movie. Great. Very the good movie. Big Short. The Big Short. I do want to see it. Yeah. Um, so it's about time for us to, to wrap this up. So I, I think I'll let, uh, uh, since I gained so much from reading David Seidenberg, let me read his la the end of this. Uh, we're in the last three paragraphs. It is the Sinai Covenant which is meant to bring us back into harmony with a world twisted by human greed and violence. It is the Sinai covenant that is meant to restore the fellowship of human and animal and to reorder our values so that the well-being of the land and the community of life takes precedence over our own perceived needs. This is what it means to, as Moses says, choose life so you may live, you and your offspring after you. This is what it means to increase your days and your children's days on the earth for as long as the skies are over the land. In modern parlance, we call it sustainability, but that's just today's buzzword. It's called Shemitah in the holy tongue, release. Releasing each other from debts, releasing the land from work, releasing ourselves from our illusions of selfhood into the freedom of living with others and living for the sake of all life. How is it then that our generation is the one that can answer the question, how does Shemitah connect to Mount Sinai? It is because it is only now when we see that human beings can really ruin my world and that there may be no one who will come after you to repair it, as the Midrash says. Only now can we understand what Shemitah means. Only now can we see that the meaning of Mount Sinai is Shemitah. May it be Hashem's will that we are seeing this in time to fulfill the vision to proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all her inhabitants, to all those souls traveling together with us on this planet. Amen. Please. John Lewis is the commencement speaker at Bard. John Lewis is John the commencement speaker at Bard. When is that? Um, it's always Memorial Day weekend. I'll be at my. And you'll be at I'll be at my uh, college reunion. It's my fortieth college reunion. Wow. So I don't know who's speaking. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. I was mostly thinking about seeing my friends. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you, everybody. I'm so glad we got to cover this. <laughs>